0: Now coming up on our 23rd year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This podcast is edition number 1184, with a release and air date of Saturday, November 6th, 2021. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now coming up on our 23rd year of service to the amateur radio community around the world, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1184 of This Week in Amateur Radio. Efforts continue in International Amateur Radio Union Region 1 to address the coexistence of amateur radio and navigation satellites. Amateur Radio Emergency Service and Skywarn mounted a large response to the recent October nor'easter. A powerful shortwave broadcast signal recently appeared on the 40-meter band. We will tell you about it. And the radio wars between Russia and the Ukraine continue to plague the low bands. Amateur Radio on the International Space Station program was a recipient this week of a $1 million grant from the ARDC Group. We will tell you the details. 3M Corporation issues a stop use and inspection notice for its self-retracting lifeline. The National Traffic Safety Board continues its investigation into the cause of a recent small plane crash that took the life of a popular DX contester. We will have the details. The BBC is celebrating its 100th anniversary next year with a year-long special event station operating from all over the UK, in addition to the BBC broadcast house. NASA has temporarily shut down the Hubble Space Telescope, we'll tell you why. And a new museum in Poland will honor an historic high-power World War II telegraphy station. We will have all the details, including the reconstruction of its 200-kilowatt transmitter and towers, in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment, along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will talk about all the benefits we are seeing in working from home, and he will talk about how most scientists are now saying Moore's Law is nowhere near ending. Australia's own Anno Shop, BK6FLAB, will talk about the ripple effect of making change. Our own amateur radio historian Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill takes us back to November 15, 1945, the day amateurs returned to the air after a three-year prohibition, and he will look at how long it took for the military to vacate the ham bands and how once hams got back on the air they discovered something called TVI. Our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will tell us about making antenna mounting hardware from scraps. And we will have a great commentary entitled That's Not Real Ham Radio by Chris Rawlinson, G7DDN. All of that and a lot more is straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio. Takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in someplace that's not quite Albany, New York, but nearby, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from the
1: newsroom
2: in Half Moon, New York, I'm Terry Saunders, N1KIN. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, along the southern shore of Lake Ontario, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And
3: reporting from our amateur radio facilities high atop the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York, where lately there's been a bit of frost and snow on the pumpkins, I'm Don Hulick,
4: K2ATJ. And from Studio One of our Central Florida News Bureau, where it's wet and cold, but at least it's not snow. I'm Fred, November Fox, 2 Fox.
5: And reporting from a foggy Troy, New York News Bureau, I'm Eric, KD2, RJX. And reporting from our news
6: bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where autumn gave old man winter a swift kick in the shin and is back for a couple of days, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. And now with this week's lead story, here is Terry
0: Saunders, N1KIN. Leading off our news this week.
1: The issue of coexistence between amateur radio and satellite navigation systems on 23 centimeters continues as a discussion topic in advance of World Radio Communication Conference 2023. The issue primarily involves interference potential to one satellite frequency in the European Union's Galileo GPS system. Agenda Item 9.1B at WRC 23 calls for review of the Amateur Service and the Amateur Satellite Service allocations in the frequency band 1240 to 1300 MHz to determine if additional measures are required to ensure protection of the radio navigation satellite or space-to-earth service operating in the same band in accordance with Resolution 774 from WRC 19. In late October, the International Amateur Radio Union was involved in preparatory work for WRC 23, Agenda Item 9.1B. These discussions are occurring in the International Telecommunications Union Working Party 4C. The Working Party is considering simulations provided by two administrations' countries to estimate the interfered area that might exist around a 23-centimeter band amateur service transmitter, IARU said in a news release. A number of amateur station configurations are under consideration, based on characteristics developed and contributed by the IARU. Both narrowband and wideband emissions are considered. Various representative station and antenna configurations are being modeled. IARU representatives contributed to a discussion to ensure that the station parameters are more representative than those proposed in the original contribution papers. The studies were revised based on these negotiations during the meeting and are reflected in the draft working document. The interim results show interference distances up to several kilometers depending on antenna and power level. This work will continue into the next WP4C meeting. Other measurement campaigns are investigating the effect of offsetting the transmission frequency of various amateur signals with respect to the center frequency of the RNSS satellite navigation signal and the impact of the RNSS receiver bandwidth. The IARU is working to ensure the amateur services are realistically represented in the studies as they move forward. A summary
2: report from the WP4C meeting is available on the IARU website. A major nor'easter struck eastern Massachusetts and Rhode Island late last month with ferocious winds stronger than those that Tropical Storm Henri brought to the region in August. With more information on how amateurs responded to this latest storm, we go to Rick Lindquist, ww one me who files this detailed story from ARRL headquarters in Newington.
7: Starting on the evening of October 26, Amateur Radio Emergency Service and National Weather Service Skywarn storm spotter teams joined forces to help emergency services provide a focused and effective response as the powerful nor'easter caused widespread damage. Tree and wire damage, trees falling on homes and cars, and a few cases of direct structural damage were reported. Eastern Mass Section Emergency Coordinator Rob Macedo, KD1CY, said volunteers handled hundreds of damage reports and photos of damage streamed in from ARIES and Skywarn operators to support damage assessment efforts and to keep the National Weather Service apprised of the severe weather conditions. ARIES and Skywarn operators relayed reports of hurricane forest wind gusts reaching 94 miles an hour in Edgartown, Massachusetts. Cape Cod and the Island's Aries District Emergency Coordinator, Frank Lachlan, WQ10, said damage assessment would give a better sense of how long it would take to restore power and, in some cases, telecommunications to Cape Cod and the islands area. Macedo called the Nor'easter one of our more extraordinary weather systems. Within the last few years, as many as 500,000 customers lost power in the eastern Massachusetts section. I'm Rick Lindquist, WW1ME.
2: The dedication of our volunteers to provide this critical information in a major storm like this one to the NWS media and emergency managers during such a grueling stretch is very critical to inform people what is happening during such a significant storm when they wake up in the morning, so they will hopefully make safe decisions to avoid being out in a significant severe window situation, Macedo said. Cape Cod's ARIES was activated by the Barnstable County Regional Emergency Planning Committee to staff the Multi-Agency Coordination Center at the Barnstable County Emergency Operations Center. Cape Cod ARIES Multi-Agency Coordination Center support concluded on October 29th after a round-the-clock effort. Skywarn damage reports and meteorological data are shared with State Emergency Management NGOs, and the media. Meteorologist Kevin Lemonowich of Boston 25 News said, thanks for all the effort. Great work as always. As many as 500,000 customers lost power in the ARRL Eastern Massachusetts section, with hardest hit areas in southeastern Massachusetts, Cape Cod and the islands, and the Cape Ann area north of Boston, where near-hurricane force wind gusts pummeled the region for several hours. Maximum winds were up to 65 miles per hour. Rhode Island reported nearly 93,000 customers without power at the peak. These outages were an order of magnitude greater than during Tropical Storm Henri in Rhode Island, and about five orders of magnitude more severe than Henri in Massachusetts. Storm conditions wound down toward the evening of October 27th, allowing the process of more widespread power restoration to begin. All operations secured and power was restored to most locations on October 30th and to all locations on October 31st.
8: Now celebrating our 22nd year keeping the amateur radio community informed, you're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio. Available worldwide as a podcast from our web at www.twiar.net.
0: On Monday, NASA announced that the Hubble Space Telescope's science instruments were in an extended shutdown after problems appeared in late October. The issues arose as failed internal communications caused the science instruments to switch into safe mode twice over a two-day period. Everything outside the instruments is behaving normally, so the telescope is not at risk. Earlier this year, Hubble spent an extended period in safe mode due to problems with the power supply that feeds the main payload computer. Because the power supply affected a variety of hardware, the issues were difficult to diagnose. In this case, however, the issues appear to be simpler, at least superficially. The instrument package on the Hubble uses an internal synchronization signal to ensure that everything registers at the same time, allowing instruments to respond to commands in the proper order. On October 23rd, one of these synchronization signals failed to register, causing all of the scientific instruments to enter safe mode. A simple reset of the instruments got everything working again. But on October 25th, the scientific instruments registered the loss of multiple synchronization signals and all of them re-entered safe mode. Given the repeat and apparent escalating nature of the problem, NASA has left the instruments in that state ever since. NASA says its engineers are assessing the behavior of the instruments and looking over Hubble's hardware setup to figure out what could be causing the problem. That information is being used to devise test procedures that will
6: allow NASA to narrow down the culprits and come up with a repair solution. DARC describes how a case of interference in the primary amateur radio 40-meter band by an AM broadcast station in Tashkent was speedily dealt with. A translation of the DARC post reads, There was an AM broadcast on 7,160 kHz on October 22nd between 1800 and 1815 UTC. Due to the transmission power of the radio station and the breadth of the commercial A3E signal, there was considerable impairment of the radio traffic in the 7,155 to 7,165 kHz range in large parts of Europe and the Middle East. The frequency range 7,000 to 7,200 kilohertz is exclusively assigned to the Amateur Radio Service in accordance with the ordinance on the Amateur Radio Act, Annex 1, to Section 1, Number 6, under German regulations. Germany's bandwatch contacted the company responsible, Media Broadcast, to investigate the cause. Media Broadcast said the mistake was made by a contracted relay station in Tashkent. The exact cause is still being investigated. The provider there had actually been commissioned by media broadcast to broadcast on 6,040 kHz in the 49-meter radio band. We were assured that this was a one-off incident and apologized for the inconvenience. This story was filed by Daniel Moeller, DL3RTL, head of the band watch. Meanwhile, the International Amateur Radio Union Region 1 monitoring system reports in its recent issue of the IARU-MS newsletter that the Russian-Ukrainian radio war on and around 7055 kHz continues to be a major source of frustration. IARU-MS Region 1 coordinator Peter Yost, HB9-CET, said, The -the on-the-air conflict has been bothering us to an unbearable extent for a very long time, and is still continuing. Earlier this year, International Amateur Radio Union Region 1 Monitoring System reported that the Russian-Ukrainian radio war had escalated. During the summer, they used more frequencies than before, affecting our bands very hard. Yost recounted, It is a great annoyance and a big shame. Yost has pointed out that the IARU monitoring system has little opportunity to stop the -the on-the-air conflict. Only national authorities can hopefully do something against international complaints, he said. It is very important and very helpful that many other IARU member societies also observe these frequencies and make complaints to their regulators. The long-standing conflict has also affected 7050 and 7060 kilohertz. Best known for arranging amateur radio
3: contacts between students and astronauts, amateur radio on the international space station has announced that it's received a generous grant to fund student and teacher education via radio experimentation and operations or the stereo project with more details on this exciting project we go to rick lindquist ww1me reporting from league headquarters
7: the five-year amateur radio digital communications or ardc grant totals nearly 1.3 million dollars. It'll fund three distinct initiatives that will enable ARIS to sustain and improve science, technology, electronics, arts, and mathematics educational outcomes. ARIS will develop a wireless electronics technology kit called Sparky, S-P-A-R-K-I, or Space Pioneers Amateur Radio Kit Initiative, for use with middle and high schoolers. ARIS will conduct educator workshops for a selected set of educators to help them employ Sparky in their education environment and get feedback and suggestions. Over its five-year lifetime, the grant will also support some of the many costs involved with ARIS contact operations between students and astronauts aboard the ISS. I'm Rick Lindquist, WW1ME. The
3: ARDC grant will spark E from prototype to operational phase. ARISS would then deploy these kits among a selected set of formal and informal educational organizations that are planning future ARIS radio contact. ARIS USA Executive Director Frank Bauer, KA3HDO, said ARIS is extremely excited about the new five-year initiative. It will be a STEAM education game changer and represents a key element in the ARIS 2.0 version, Bauer said. Most importantly, it brings wireless technologies and amateur radio into our heiress formal and informal classrooms. We thank ARDC for their interest and support and look forward to working with them on this incredible initiative. Amateur radio digital communications mission is to support, promote, and enhance digital communications and broader communication science and technology, to promote amateur radio, scientific research, experimentation, education, development, open access, and innovation in information and communication technology. ARDC grants projects and organizations that follow amateur radio's practice and tradition of technical experimentation that has led to broad advances for the benefit of the public. These include mobile phone and wireless internet technology. ARDC envisions a world where technology is available through open source hardware and software and where anyone who has an ability to innovate upon it. In the last two decades, more than 1,400 ARISS ham radio contacts have connected with more than a million students using amateur radio with millions of others watching, listening, and learning. Amateur radio in Space Station is constantly pursuing opportunities to enhance and sustain educational capabilities and outcomes.
1: 3M has issued a stop use and inspection notice for the 3M DBI Sala NanoLock Self-Retracting Lifeline with Anchor Hook. The company advises owners to remove the anchor hook product from service until an inspection is performed. The notice pertains to specific versions of the anchor hook. 3M fall protection has identified a very low potential for the DBI Sala NanoHook self-retracting lifeline with anchor hook to be assembled with an unformed top swivel eye rivet. An improperly formed rivet may become displaced from the top swivel eye. An unformed rivet may result in the self-retracting lifeline becoming detached from the anchor hook, which could result in severe injury or death, 3M said. Due to this, we are sending out an inspection notice so this issue can be detected by inspecting the self-retracting lifeline. More details are available on the 3M website.
2: Jerry Hull, w one ve Stroke ve one rm reports that he is still hoping to be able to operate remotely as VY1AAA from Northern Territories, a rare multiplier in the ARRL November sweepstakes event. Hall said that a family health emergency had kept J. Allen, VY1JA, from working on getting his station up and running again, but the situation has brightened somewhat and Allen is back at it. Hull has operated Allen's station in Whitehorse, Yukon, remotely from the U.S. to make the multiplier available. Allen dismantled his station and antennas last year, but recently decided to make the station usable again. Allen reported that work is being done to repair a vertical antenna and expand its radial set to include 20 and 80 meters. He told Hull that he would go over the station computer setup to make sure that any desk can operate the stations remotely from the VY-1JA computer. Allen is also working on primary and secondary wire antennas for the two November sweepstake events. Hull told Allen that for him, 80 meters is a lower priority for November sweepstakes and that 40 and 20 are the meat and potatoes bands.
8: You're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a podcast at our website, www.twiar.net and streamed worldwide via Spotify and iHeartMedia.
9: The 3 Yankee Zero Juliet team report that they've reached their first payment milestone for the Marimar vessel contract, which will transport them to the very rare Bouvet Island. They recently paid the first deposit, and with this payment, they confirm their plan to activate the number two most wanted entity on the planet. They would like to thank each individual and club who have contributed to this payment with their upfront support, especially thanks to their lead sponsor, the Northern Californian DX Foundation. It is a huge task and undertaking to go to Bouvet, and they still critically need additional advanced financial support to close the budget. The team are happy to announce that two operators have been added to the team to make it complete with 13 operators. Dave, Whiskey Delta 5 Charlie Oscar Victor, will rejoin the team for this adventure to Bouvet. Dave is a well-known and recognised DXer and DXpeditioner who has embarked on over 10 major expeditions, including three in the Top 10 Most Wanted category. In addition, they've included Captain Peter in the team as a combined crew and dedicated FT4 and FT8 operator. Peter is an experienced captain and expedition leader with huge experience of offshore sailing, sailing in remote uncharted polar areas, and he specialises in supporting some of the most complex expeditions in the Arctic and Antarctica. He is experienced in safety evacuation procedures, man-overboard manoeuvres in cold water, beach landings in difficult locations, and he's an experienced Zodiac inflatable landing craft operator. He will be heading up the Zodiac landing on Bouvet. The team's preparation for Bouvet includes planning, constructing and testing a system for landing Zodiacs safely. This will be tested in rough sea in Norway before and after Christmas. They plan for several systems and techniques to adapt to the on-site conditions. They are working on how best to safely land the Zodiacs in different manners, also with some swell, unmanned and with less risk for operators. They are also preparing for the unfortunate event that a Zodiac capsizes but still being able to retrieve the equipment. The team has done the first preliminary sea trials of the Zodiac equipment in Norway and will continue sea trials to further refine the concept. The plan is for a gasoline-powered winch system to lift equipment up the cliff and this will be tested in Norway after Christmas. The intention is to access the 25-foot cliff with professional assistance and, if needed, prepare for climbing and bolting a short route to gain access. The team have been refreshing their climbing skills. Indeed, some team members will be certified climbers. In 2022, with instructors, they will practice safe rope access training and evacuation down the cliff, which will also include emergency evacuation procedures with an injured operator. The instructors have been trained at IRATA, the International Industrial Rope Access Trade Association. IRATA specialises in rope access techniques for much of the work in the offshore oil and gas industry, as well as a range of projects in construction, civil engineering and the built and natural environment. The D expedition team will also have an extended off-island team of five Norwegian professionals and experts from the maritime industry to assist. These are former captains and chief engineers with huge experience with rigid inflatable boats and and search-and-rescue vehicles, and skills in maritime risk assessment and safety training. Some of these individuals have previously stayed for several seasons at Bouvet, anchored at Cape Phi, or have passed Bouvet more than 60 times and even done Zodiac boat landing at the same spot planned. With all these activities and the knowledge in the extended team, this will be a well-planned and executed project. You can follow the team's plans on the www.3yankee0juliet website and the 3y0j Facebook page. The 3 co-leaders are Ken, Lima Alpha 7 Golf India Alpha, Runa, Lima Alpha 7 Tango Hotel Alpha, and Ervan, Lima Bravo 1 Quebec India. The National Transportation Safety Board has said it will take at least a
6: year before investigators complete their study of the crash on October 21st that claimed the life of a popular, well-known DXer and contester, William Roberts, AA4NC, of Apex, North Carolina. According to the Associated Press, Roberts was piloting the small aircraft when it crashed in a wooded area not far from the airport shortly after takeoff. A licensed commercial pilot, Roberts was killed along with another passenger. Two children were also on board and were hospitalized for treatment of their injuries. Keith Holloway, a spokesman for the National Transportation Safety Board, said that it was too early in the investigation to determine what caused the crash of the single-engine plane, a Mooney M20J, which belonged to William Roberts. Roberts, who was 61, was an enthusiastic DXer and an avid contester who took part in the first World Radio Sport Team Championship competition in 1990 and returned to be a judge at the event in Germany in 2018. He is also listed on the DXCC Honor Roll.
7: The Radio Society of Great Britain reports the 2-Z-E suffix has been authorized to mark 100 years since wireless pioneers on both sides of the Atlantic, including Paul Godley, 2-Z-E from the U.S., succeeded in copying a signal transmitted across the pond, as it were, and received in Scotland on December 12, 1921. This marked the first successful reception of a personal message across the Atlantic by amateur radio. ARRL had dispatched Godly as part of its second transatlantic tests. The London BBC Radio Group has been granted a year-long special event call sign GB100 BBC to commemorate the centenary of the BBC in 2022. Operations will be carried out by individual members or groups from home stations or from BBC premises.
9: IARU Region 1 reports that the European Commission is to examine whether there's a need for new rules on the environmental impact of photovoltaic cells, that's primarily solar panels to you and me. The IARU Region 1 Political Relations Committee responded recently to a European Commission roadmap on the environmental impact of photovoltaics. The radio spectrum is an important finite natural resource which must be protected. While photovoltaic technology of itself is to be welcomed, the IARU submission pointed out the inherent problems of non-compliant installations, particularly the installation or retrofitting of optimizers, which can produce significant spectrum pollution for very limited efficiency increases. The roadmap and responses may be viewed on the Commission website at ec.europa.eu. The IARU Political Relations Committee work, and in particular their responses to public and other consultations, can be found at www.iaru-r1.org. About us, and then search for the PRC section.
3: Imagine a navigation system that doesn't need to communicate with the Global Positioning System satellites. Operators of vehicles, including those in the military, worry about the potential for spoofing or jamming, which is always there whenever a signal is transmitted. Signal scientists are now looking for a way for vehicles to self-track, using devices they carry right on board, instead of communicating with a satellite. Instead of relying on radio transmissions, these devices send lasers into clouds of rubidium gas in order to measure a vehicle's rotation and acceleration. An article on the phys.org website describes the device as an avocado-sized vacuum chamber containing the rubidium atoms inside. It's described as a small practical size with a quantum sensing performance that still gets the job done, as well as a gyroscope and atomic accelerometers. Peter Schwint, a developer at Sandia National Laboratories, claims the device is also as accurate as the atomic clocks that interface with satellites to keep them in sync. According to the scientists, it's not yet ready for prime time. Santia will be monitoring it for at least five
0: years. You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the amateur radio hobbyist. We are This Week in Amateur Radio.
3: now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to
10: present Leo Laporte. Oh, now it's time for me to talk. I was under my desk. Excuse me. (laughs) When you're a tech guy. Hello, everybody. Leo Laporte here, the tech guy. When you're a tech guy, uh, you often go under your desk, right? Am I I ringing a bell? You know, you reach under there because there's wiring and stuff, and I had a new... Wireless charger, I needed to plug in, and that meant a trip down below. And it's funny because uh, when my, whenever I go underneath this desk, my engineers come running in. That, it's, no, they, it's not that they think I had a heart attack or something and have fallen, but because <laughs> they don't like seeing me go down there because they know danger, Will Robinson, I might do something and break things. I didn't. Everything's fine. Charger's working. If you're the type of person that spends a little bit of time clambering beneath your desk, this is the show for you. I imagine uh, many of you are working on your work-from-home setup. I hope you can work from home. Our editors, our uh, office staff, they can all work from home. And I think that's a great thing. You work-from-home setup. My producer, Carson, is coming in today because he says, I can't, <laughs> I can't, I'm not going to live with this MacBook keyboard. <laughs> it's too horrible. So we, we provide, of course, as many companies do, we provide our staff with computers of their choice. Most cases, that's uh, MacBooks, MacBook Pros. Uh, a few of our people prefer Windows machines, some of them desktop. Editors, of course, have to work on desktops, but they have laptops they can take home. And amazingly enough, uh, video editing, a lot of that you can do at home. You have to have a certain amount of bandwidth. We're providing that for our uh, staff. Karsten wanted two monitors, and I think a lot of editors want multiple monitors, and you can do that with most laptops. Um, So uh, he's coming in to get a monitor and a keyboard, (laughs) and uh, he'll take those home, so it's easier for him to work from home. It's kind of amazing. If we didn't have this Internet technology, this would be a lot harder, wouldn't it? A lot of people are using video conferencing to stay in touch with colleagues, and nowadays this is not uncommon, Microsoft with their Teams, Google with their Hangouts, uh, Skype. A lot of people can do video conferencing. And what I'm also seeing is groups that would normally be in the office together, working together, going home, firing up Google Hangouts. They've upped the uh, number of Hangouts uh, you can have at a time. I think the number of people is 250 now. And there's no time limit. You know, It doesn't time out after a few hours. So you can literally... Get on a group hangout, every single person who's in your team, and leave that up and running 24-7 so that you can confer. I think we're going to learn some things about uh, what we need for work, for school, for church. We talked to two different pastors looking for ways to stream their services. One was already doing it. Uh, One was looking for a better way to do it. I think we may see, I mean, certainly one of the negatives of technology and uh, and the way we live today is that we are isolated more aren't we i've often felt that the, the the problems we feel in society these days are because even families now are spread out you know in the old days you'd all be living near each other uh, i go to countries like uh, well in the middle east and uh, there's usually several generations living in the same house when, uh, when a kid gets married they they move them in and they build another floor they literally <laughs> in in Egypt and uh, some in other countries they leave the top floor unfinished the rebars still there so that they can add a floor and of course the older folks stay on the lower floors and as they add family members with marriages and kids they just add floors to the building I think that's kind of cool and there is a certain advantage isn't there to having everybody around I mean it's a disadvantage too I know many of us We just can't wait for the kids to move out or we just can't wait to move out ourselves. I understand that. But there's a certain psychological benefit we get from being a a tight community, a tight communal situation. Nevertheless, technology has made it possible for us to spread out. And I think this will be an interesting experiment. Is it as good as face-to-face to to have, you know, I FaceTimed with my mom twice this weekend because she's a little nervous. She's 86, 87. Sorry, mom. And, uh, and she's a little nervous. She's a little uh, anxious. The good news is she's still living at home. She's not in a nursing home. And so she can kind of isolate herself. But that's hard, right, you, to be isolated like that. Now, fortunately, my mom and I are <laughs> curmudgeons. And we don't, we don't really mind. <laughs> it's like, okay, fine. I didn't want to see you anyway. Uh, but she's still a little lonely, so I FaceTimed her. And you know what? I, in fact, one of the things I did, you might think about this with your uh, extended family. I set it up while I was making a dinner. I was making a big pot of chili, and I set it up so she could see me. We could talk while I was cooking, just as it would be if she were still living with me, and she'd be sitting at the counter. And admit, it's not quite the same, but it's better than nothing. And honestly, it ain't bad. It ain't bad. Mom uh, moved from uh, Northern California, where, where I live now, and had kids and family, uh, to Rhode Island. Where for, for no apparent reason. And it was hard because the grandkids couldn't see her. But now uh, now they can. They FaceTime her regularly. And I FaceTime her. And I think that that's, while not perfect, it's a nice, it's better to have that. Teams can work together that way. Have you tried that? I'm curious if anybody's tried it. Is it as good as, I think in some ways it might be better. It's one of the curses of our modern work environment nowadays, this open floor plan, right? Where it used to be you'd have an office, I guess, it, I guess we've always had open floor plans. Uh, there's always a steno pool, right? So, but it, but it used to be that if you got to a certain point in your career, you'd have your own office, or maybe you'd share an office. Nowadays, especially with uh, in tech companies, it's wide open. If you look at the Apple campus, that beautiful Apple campus they built, most of it's open. Only the top executives have their own offices. Back in the day uh, at Intel when Andy Grove was CEO, he took great pride in the fact that he did not have an office, a corner office. He was a CEO, but he had a cubicle with everybody else. And you've seen these cube farms. And, th- and sometimes it's even less than that. At the Apple uh, campus, I think they don't even have walls. You can look across the table. There's the other guy and then one next to you and then one next to you, and they're all there. That's so why typically when you see pictures of technology companies, all the coders are wearing headphones. We're trying to get some space. So maybe, maybe this is a better solution. You can still communicate because that was the idea, right? Is you can look across the other guy saying, oh, I'm having trouble with this. In fact, there's even a coding, a, a programming style called team coding where you have one editor open, two people working on it at the same time. Often, by the way, those people aren't in the same place. They're using telecommuting and sharing a, an editor. There are a number of coding editors to design specifically for this team coding. And people say, Oh, it's the best way to code. Wow. I might, maybe I'm unusual. I feel like just, just leave me alone. Leave me alone. Uh, I'm glad to see that uh, Moore's law is not going to come to an end. What? Oh no! I found out. I uh, I read a a a post from the Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturing company, better known as TSMC. They make chips for a lot of companies, including Apple, and uh, they are the. I think they were the very first to do chips at the 7 nanometer size, 7 billionths of a meter. And to give you some idea of, of where we stand right now, I'll translate uh, nanometers into angstroms because, well, <laughs> that's, how, that's how they do it. A, uh, a water molecule is 2.75 angstroms. That's 0.275 nanometers, 2.75 angstroms. 0.275 nanometers. We are now at 7 nanometers. We are effectively, and we're going to get smaller, by the way. We're going to get to 20 nanometers. That's the typical transistors, 20 nanometers. This the, the wires connecting them are 7 nanometers. That means, you know, we're on the order about five times, maybe four times the width of a water molecule. What? Wow. And that's why some people said Moore's Law is over because Moore's Law says... It has said since the 60s, and it's been true since the 60s, the number of transistors you can put on a chip will double every 18 months. That roughly means the power of a processor will double, or the storage of of RAM will double every year and a half. And it has happened. And doubling is powerful because it doubles in a year and a half, quadruples in three years. You get the idea? 12 times in six years. I mean, it's I don't know, my math is breaking down at this point. But it's, that's called an exponential rate. And that's what's given us this amazing world that we live in. Because they have so billions of transmitters, tra- hundreds of millions of transistors on a single chip. It's not dead, though. According to Godfrey Cheng, who is the head of global marketing, so maybe you want to take this with salt at TSMC. He said he said that we are going to continue to grow the density Not We pretty much are the smallest we can make these guys, these transistors. But one possible use forward is transistors made with two-dimensional materials instead of silicon as the channel. And maybe even being able to stack multiple layers of transistors. They call them monolithic 3D integrated circuits. We've already seen stacking. That's what Intel's doing with Optane. It's a memory platform and Crosspoint. He says you could add a CPU on top of a GPU on top of an AI engine with layers of memory in between. <laughs> wow. So good news. Moore's law is not dead. We, we may still be able to eke a little more density out of these processors. Wow. It's kind of amazing, the world we live in. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk
11: high tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio.
8: You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
0: And now, with this week's edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here's Bill Continelli, W2XOY.
11: November 15th, 1945. The day that amateurs had waited for ever since December 7th, 1941. Finally, after three years and 11 months of wartime radio silence, amateurs were allowed back on the air. Granted, we didn't have everything back yet, The initial authorization allowed amateur operations on 10 meters from 28 through 29.7 megacycles, 5 meters from 56 to 60 megacycles, and the new 2-meter band at 144 through 148 megacycles, and there were restrictions on these limited frequencies. Our old pre-war 5-meter allocation was temporary. The new post-war band was shifted to 6 meters from 50 to 54 megacycles, But the actual transition would not take place until March 1st, 1946. So we were back on the 56 to 60 megacycle segment for only three and a half months. On the new two-meter band, the frequencies from 146.5 through 148 megacycles were unavailable within a 50-mile radius of Washington, D.C. and Seattle, Washington. The military was still using these frequencies as well as our 160, 80. 40 and 20-meter HF bands. The military also occupied our new UHF and microwave allocations. It would be months, maybe a year or more, before the armed forces would fully vacate our bands and return them to us. But amateurs didn't care. Unlike 1919, when there was open hostility to us by the military and the threat of our elimination, the post-World War II armed forces, as well as the FCC, were fully aware of the tremendous assistance that amateurs had given throughout the war, and they were eager to give us back our frequencies. The AWRL was working closely with the FCC and the military to get our bands back. One band, however, was apparently not coming back. Our 160-meter band, the birthplace of our post-1912 operations, was fully occupied by the military with its new Loran radio navigation system the armed services and the FCC made it clear that this segment was to remain for the use of Loran. Over the years, the FCC obtained small concessions, a 25-kilocycle segment here and there, 25-watt power limitations, day and night restrictions, but from the 1940s right up until the early 1980s, our 160-meter band sounded like a huge broadbanded buzzsaw as Loran completely dominated it. But this was a minor blot on the landscape as amateurs rushed to get back on the air. 10 meters was the band they went to first, and the 28 through 29.7 megacycle range became crowded with those making up for lost time. 2 meters was next. Hams modified their old 2.5 meter equipment to operate on the new band, and soon the rushing sounds of the super regenerative receiver were everywhere. The more adventurous were trying out something called FM. 5 meters was quiet. Since the band was available for only 105 days, many hams spent that time converting their rigs to the new 6-meter band. On March 1st, 1946, our old 5-meter band died, and the new 50-54 megacycle segment was born. Also on that date, to compensate the amateurs for the loss of 29.7-30 to 30 megacycles, we were given an 11-meter band at 27 megacycles. That's right, The present-day CB band was once an amateur allocation. By May 1946, we had our 80 and 75 meter allocations back. We also had a temporary allocation from 235 to 240 megacycles, which would soon be shifted down to 220 to 225 megacycles. On November 2, 1946, the FCC finally released our 40 and 20 meter bands, By the end of 1946, we had our full HF spectrum back, 80 and 75 meters, 40 meters, which was CW only, 20, 11, and 10 meters. Note that there was no 15-meter allocation then. Our 15-meter band did not appear until 1952. The military restrictions on our 2-meter band were lifted in June of 1947, and except for 160 meters, the military was off of our bands. By 1947, every amateur band from 80 through 2 meters was full of stations, but there was trouble brewing. Amateurs weren't the only ones taken to the airwaves. Television was growing by leaps and bounds. In 1946, there were only 7,000 TV sets. In 1947, the number jumped to 180,000, and by 1948, there were over 1 million TVs in use. Amateurs who were used to harmonically related bands and an empty VHF spectrum were not prepared for the TVI their neighbors were experiencing. A typical unshielded amateur transmitter operating on 14, 28, or 50 megacycles could wipe out all the TVs in the neighborhood. QST ran a series of articles on proper shielding and filtering of stations, and hams gradually learned to eliminate harmonics from their transmitters. But there was one ban where shielding and good design didn't seem to help. Six meters. Our 50 to 54 megacycle segment was sandwiched right between TV channel 1 from 44 to 50 megacycles and TV channel 2 from 54 to 60. At that time, only channel 2 was actually being used for TV. The channel 1 range was still part of the old pre-war FM band from 42 to 50 megacycles, which was being phased out in favor of the new 88 through 108 megacycle allocation. We were causing interference to WCBS and other handful of stations on Channel 2. And the problem would only get worse when Channel 1 became available. Tests were run, and an interesting solution was proposed. Because a television video signal is amplitude-modulated, operates with a wide bandwidth, and uses the lower portion of the TV channel, it was determined that Channel 2 was twice as susceptible to interference from a 6-meter station than Channel 1 was. The ARRL's proposal to the FCC, eliminate Channel 2, keep Channel 1. But this idea didn't sit well with the stations already on Channel 2, nor did it win the approval of Major Armstrong, who was still fighting the grand battle to keep FM broadcasting in the 42 to 50 megacycle range. And so, in August 1947, the FCC withdrew Channel 1 from the TV allocations. By the end of 1947, All the pre war FM broadcast stations had disappeared from the 42 to 50 megacycle range, which was then turned over to public service. Amateurs learned to operate in the lower portions of six meters to avoid TVI to Channel 2. In our next installment, we are going to look at a major upheaval that began 40 years ago and pitted amateur against amateur and, according to some, the ARRL against hams. I'm talking about incentive licensing and how it changed the entire licensing structure. The Radio Society of Great Britain has announced that Ofcom has agreed to its request to extend
9: the 146 to 147 MHz notice of variation for a further year. The society said that access to 146 and 147 MHz is made available on a non-interference basis, and applicants should note that, as the band is increasingly being used by other users, the NOV is subject to a 30-day notice period of change or withdrawal. You can apply for the 146 to 147 MHz NOV via the RSGB website at www.rsgb.org. But please note that these frequencies are available via a notice of variation on a temporary basis to full license holders only. The 146 to 147 MHz band was first made available to full licensees, including club and reciprocal stations, during October 2014 to 2015. For more recent NOVs, Ofcom agreed to an RSGB request that means the exclusion of certain national grid reference squares as per a map on the application page would no longer be an explicit restriction. However, in order to achieve compliance with Ofcom's condition called the Harmonized Calculation Method, intended to reduce interference to other users in certain locations, operating in those squares are where particular caution is still required. Achieving compliance with the HCM condition may require lower power than the NOV ERP limit or the use of directional antennas that must be beamed away from international borders. Please note that the NOV is only valid for up to one year, so that's until the 31 October 2022. Ofcom's objective in allocating this new part of the spectrum was to encourage amateurs to experiment and test new communications schemes and systems rather than provide for more of the same existing 2-metre operation. In terms of band planning, therefore, with the exception of a small slice at the top of the 146 to 147 band, around and about 100 kHz for digital voice, DSTAR and DMR, the RSGB currently intends to leave the majority of the new allocation open for experimentation with moderate experimental digital voice and data transmissions. That's up to 500 kHz bandwidth. You can find out more by visiting rsgb.org forward slash nov and then following the 146-147 MHz link. You're listening to America's premier amateur radio news magazine of the air. This week in amateur radio.
12: So, what is ham radio anyway? I'm Larry McGlure, KB9DIP, with the Rain Report Hamcast. When one hears the discussion about amateur radios interfacing with digital technology, like Echolink, JT65, FT8, and even Ready, invariably some diehard 80-meter redneck has nothing better to say than, ah, uh, that's not real ham radio. So just what is real ham radio? For a European perspective, we turn to Chris Rollinson, G7DDN. Chris recently penned and voiced a commentary addressing this question. It's Not Real Ham Radio, by Chris, G7DDN.
13: I was musing recently on the wonderful history of amateur radio from the early pioneers with spark transmitters and the race to get the first signals across the Atlantic, all the way up to the microwave enthusiasts who developed the way forward for space communications and satellite technology. And a whisper this, yes, mobile phone technology too. The history of ham radio and RF technology is inextricably linked. There was even a time here in the UK where it was believed, anecdotally at least, that a ham radio call sign could help you to get a job with the BBC. However... Change came very quickly, relatively speaking, in the early history of radio. From Marconi's experiments to the first public broadcast stations was only 25 or so years, and TV was only another 15 years or so behind that, and so on. Yet the history of ham radio is also one of resistance to change. Not from the pioneers, they were often the instigators of it, but from the everyday hams. Let me see if I can give you some examples with my tongue planted very firmly in my cheek. The early hams used CW pretty much exclusively, so when AM arrived as one of the first of the voice modes, there was a bit of an uproar. It's not real ham radio! Real ham radio involves using a Morse key. What on the world is the hobby coming to? Using voice to communicate over the airwaves. It's sacrilege. But life went on. AM found acceptance, and all was well in Hamland once again. Then transistor technology arrived in the late 1940s and early 1950s, provoking quite a response. Hang on! That's not real ham radio! Real ham radio is glow in the dark! We can't be having this miniature technology, they'll never last as long as valves or be as reliable. But life went on. Solid state devices found acceptance, and all was well in Hamland once again. Then SSB arrived, and there was more discontent. That's not real ham radio. Real ham radios don't sound like Donald Duck. It's a fad. It'll soon fall away once people get fed up of hearing those silly voices. But life went on. SSB found acceptance and all was well in Hamland once again. Then FM and repeaters arrived. And there was polarisation within the hobby. And it wasn't horizontal or vertical I'm talking about either. That's not real ham radio. Real ham radio doesn't need to use that thing on top of that hill to help your signal get somewhere. Real ham radio is point to point. But life went on. FM and repeaters found acceptance, and all was well in Hamland once again. Then packet radio arrived, and there was real trouble. That's not real ham radio. Real ham radio doesn't need one of those newfangled computer fingers in order to work. Get your key out, get your mic out and start working other hams properly. But life went on. Packet radio found acceptance and all was well in Hamland once again. Then Digimodes arrived and there was yet more strife. That's not real ham radio. Real ham radio doesn't involve typing messages to other hams and those perishing computers again. What on earth are they doing in our hobby? But life went on. Digimodes found acceptance and all was well in Hamland once again. Then digital voice modes arrived and there were some very serious disagreements. That's not real ham radio. Real ham radios don't sound like R2-D2. Real ham radios don't use the internet to help them get round the world. They absolutely have to use atmospheric propagation. What is happening to this hobby? But life went on. D-Star and other digital voice modes found acceptance, and all was well in Hamland once again. Then we arrive at today, and network radios come on the scene. And all hell breaks loose. That's not real ham radio. This is playing at ham radio. There's no amateur RF, so it simply isn't ham radio. What's more, I worked hard for my licence, and everyone else should have to, too. How dare people enjoy communications in an incorrect manner? So, will life go on, and will all ever be well in Hamland once again? It's the 21st century challenge. This is why the advent of network radios represents such a challenge to us as hams. It's causing us to completely rethink what it means to be a radio amateur in 2018 and beyond. And we will have to start facing up to questions similar to these. What exactly defines a radio amateur? What do we mean by amateur RF? Is it RF generated by someone who is an amateur? Or is it RF generated on a particular band allocated to us by government? If so, does it absolutely have to be that? Can it be nothing else? Or does any of all this really matter anyway? And what about our bands? As hams, we're very attached to our bands. Whether it's 160 metres or 2 metres, we almost have a psychological sense of ownership of them. We have favourite bands... We have bands we never frequent. We even have our spot frequencies. And you know as well as I that some hams will get somewhat assertive if a fellow amateur is not a member of their group dares to use their frequency. And yet, in the 21st century, I believe this whole concept of bands and frequencies could be becoming ever more fluid. Why would this be? Let me give you an example from broadcast radio. Not that long ago, we could tune into broadcast stations on long wave LF, medium-wave, MF, short-wave, HF, and FM on VHF band 2. Stations frequently referred to themselves by frequency. This is 247 metres, radio 1. Or, hi, it's 1152 AM, for example. That was seen as part of the station's identity. Many of them had the frequency as part of their station names. But today we're increasingly hearing less of this. When you listen to broadcast stations these days... They seem to be eschewing giving out frequencies. Instead, they just kind of do a general announcement that they are available on FM, DAB and digital, or something similar to that. Now, why is that happening? It's probably because radio is something you increasingly consume in one of two ways, either digitally, via DAB or satellite or similar means, or by streaming via the internet. So frequencies, and by extension, bands, are not as relevant as they once were. The large broadcasters are also increasingly moving away from traditional radio. On shortwave, only a few countries and various religious groups seem to operate there now. The big guys are also moving out of long and medium wave too. So if commercial broadcasters are moving away, we really need to ask why. I have a suspicion that this is, in part at least, because bands and frequencies don't matter so much these days. Domestic radio appliances are more about push buttons and screens that get you to your station instantly, rather than tuning dials with frequencies. It's the end product, in other words, that's important, and not necessarily the manner in which it gets to you. Who tunes a modern broadcast radio in these days with a manual tuning dial? Anyone? It was the main knob on all radios not that many years ago. I can even remember tuning old VHF TV in with a dial in my early days on this planet, and tuning TV with a dial, well, that seems really odd now.
12: You're in the middle of a commentary written and voiced by Chris Rawlinson, G7DDN, an active ham in the UK. We'll conclude his thoughtful commentary in a moment.
8: You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
13: Going one step further... Many broadcast stations are not even using direct RF at all. We still refer to them as radio stations, or maybe occasionally internet radio stations. So is there any reason to think ham radio as a hobby will not invariably move in a similar kind of direction eventually? One of our strengths historically as radio hams has been that we're good at embracing new technologies and really good at adapting them for our own uses. The point I'm leading up to really is this. I suspect that bands and frequencies are not really as big an issue in the digital age as we might perhaps like them to be. Now, in essence, our bands only exist because of propagation. All the amateur bands, 160, 40, 80, 20, 10 metres, 2 metres, all of them in reality are line-of-sight only bands. To oversimplify difficult subject. It's the ionospheric or tropospheric layers that enhance that line of sight propagation, and they transform it and turn it into something else that gives us long-distance propagation. Each band has differing propagation qualities as a result, giving each band its character. And for some people, the study of propagation in itself is a fascinating part of the hobby. When we think of and use the internet as a man-made propagating medium, which is what it is, it propagates signals around the world, then the concept of bands becomes redundant. The internet, this man-made propagation, is like one almost infinitely wide, worldwide band, constantly open, constantly S9 plus 40 to all countries around the world, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, with very few vagaries, and not just for voice, but for vision and all kinds of other modes, digital modes as well. Put like that, who wouldn't want to use it? Would it actually matter what band you were or were not on, even if they were what? Hmm. So the concept of bands by which so many of us divine our activities may be crumbling in front of us in this digital age, and we may not even realise it yet. Now, that's not to say that our bands don't still exist, by the way. Clearly they do. It's just that, to many people these days, bands are a foreign concept. And then what? As the hobby starts to come to terms with some of the implications of this, all kinds of issues begin to arise, such as, do we need an exam anymore to get a licence? Do we even need a licence? What form should it take if so? Might we see an influx of new people coming into the hobby because the entry to it is more straightforward? How would we cope with that? Do we even want new people coming in, especially if their views are different from ours? What will the hobby even look like in 20 years' time? on what will happen to our traditional bands. I expect to see a lot of discussion in the future about this, and I find it actually quite exciting. However, it will make many of us feel extremely uncomfortable. The ground is shifting beneath our feet, and the traditional raison d'etre of ham radio is waiting to be challenged to change and to adapt. I don't see this as a totally bad thing, if I'm honest. Intelligent, honest debate is always to be welcomed. The most important thing is to keep our minds and our thinking wide open. We shouldn't just reject something out of hand just because it's new, or just because it challenges our own preconceived ideas of where radio should go. Equally, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater and reject traditional ham radio as it has been for years. Surely the ionosphere and the internet are complementary and not in competition. If you've listened this far, and you haven't switched off, and you really want my personal thoughts, why can't we have the best of both worlds? Surely we can. Network radios, at this stage in their development at least, are not contest radios, for example, and the internet is not yet a contest-friendly mode of propagation. That might change, of course. So contesting, for example, is still best on the traditional handbands. I'll see you on 80 metres, 59001, old man. However, regular, reliable, high-quality contacts around the world are but one thing that network radios excel at. So why not just use that when you want to? or when the HF bands are so full of noise, or are otherwise dead. I do. I don't see the expansion of choice in the hobby as a bad thing. To me, enjoyment is the key. Does the fact that I'm transmitting on a cellular frequency at, say, 800 megahertz, 900, 1800, 2100 megahertz, or perhaps even on Wi-Fi at 2.4 gigahertz or 5 GHz, does that matter? Is there something intrinsically evil about that? Is it more virtuous to use 21 megahertz or 432 megahertz, for example? They're just frequencies, after all. I prefer to see myself following the motto of my local radio club, having fun with RF. Whether I choose to use a network radio or a, a yay Comwood wood super-duper base station is not really as relevant to me. Enjoyment of the hobby is everything. Otherwise, why have a hobby? Whichever way this debate goes, and whichever direction this great hobby takes, my line would be to keep all the richness of every aspect of the hobby. In other words, to go back to the title of this piece and change but one word, it's all real ham radio. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Rollinson, G7DDN.
12: This has been a commentary written and voiced by British ham, Chris Rollinson, G7DDN. You'll find a written copy of Chris's commentary on his website, g7ddn.com, and click on articles. Your rebuttal to Chris's commentary is always welcome, preferably in MP3 format, and email to hap at therainreport.com. I'm Larry McGlore, KB9DIP, bidding you a very 73 from the Radio Amateur Information Network.
14: Foundations of Amateur Radio During the week, a new piece of software was born. It's not going to solve world hunger or address man-made climate change, but it will help some contesters who want to get on air and make noise, without actually making noise. From my VK6FLAB GitHub page, you can get yourself a copy of a tiny little bash script with the catchy name of SSB Daemon, and use it to launch your very own remote-controlled voice gear. After making the announcement, I received several emails from excited contesters who wanted to thank me for my efforts, and I have to tell you, making something that others find useful is very rewarding. My announcement also sparked some discussion around using voice gears, including some who consider that this isn't a useful addition to the hobby. More on that in a moment. After the code was written, I had to actually, you know, use it. So I hooked up my radio, launched SSB Daemon and fired up my current contest logger of choice, TLF, and attempted to make noise. Unfortunately, I wasn't so lucky as to make it all work on the first try. TLF needs to be in CW mode for SSB Daemon to work, and someone somewhere at some point decided that when you change band, the mode needs to be set. So despite me setting my radio to either lower or upper sideband, TLF would helpfully change it to CW which actively prevented me from making noise. Since TLF is open source, I was able to download its source code, and after some trial and error, including discussion with the TLF developer community, I added my own little flavour to my copy of TLF to make it always use sideband. My fix isn't useful long term, but right now it will make it possible for me to operate my voice gear. An alternative would have been to turn off rig control. This also sparked discussion on the TLF mailing list about how we might implement this kind of functionality long term. Those two things, the fact that I could hack my own copy of TLF and discuss long term updates, is why I think that open source and amateur radio are an obvious match. I released my SSB daemon script as open source too, so I immediately benefited from other people looking at it and giving me feedback. As a direct result, my code improved, my tool became more useful, and those changes were published for anyone to use immediately. At this point, I should mention that although I'm using TLF, SSB Daemon is a drop-in replacement for CW Daemon, and should work anywhere as a direct replacement, so tools like CQRLog, XLog, and others can use it with no changes to their code. Back to the discussion about the usefulness of this tool in relation to our hobby. I think that a tool like mine does a number of things. It achieves the direct purpose that it was built for, making it possible to create a more universal voice keyer, but it also does other things. I set out to make TLF do callsign voice keying, but in solving the problem, I managed to build a tool that was universal to any station using an external Morse keyer, regardless of whether or not they were using TLF. Several emails commented on the way that I'd come to this solution and observed that this opened opportunities beyond my script, including operating single sideband contests remotely. As a direct result of my release, there's now discussion underway in relation to how TLF manages band changes. It's not finished, likely it'll go through several iterations and might not be implemented immediately, but the fact that this discussion is happening comes as a side effect of my script. This little script, truthfully almost trivial script, is causing change to happen in unexpected places. It did make me wonder if there are little things like this that we can do to bring awareness and activity to other areas. Things like man-made climate change, and how we might achieve that in tiny, unexpected ways. As for running a contest with my new voice gear, propagation permitting, keep an ear out and let me know how it goes. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo.
8: Now celebrating our 22nd year keeping the amateur radio community informed, you're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio, available worldwide as a podcast from our web at www.twiar.net.
7: Time now for the AMSAT report. At the AMSAT Board of Directors meeting in late October, one discussion topic was using commercially built and launched FM satellites to keep AMSAT's FM presence in space. Here is AMSAT President Robert Bankston, KE4AL. So the short-term solution is uh, yesterday, the board authorized the purchase of a commercial FM1U CubeSat. Uh,
1: the reason why we decided on the purchase purchasing a commercial unit is, number one, the quick turnaround. Uh, from the day you sign the contract, you could have one launched in six months.
7: In other news, there's a new AMSAT award. The Central States VHF Society has moved its reverse VUCC award to AMSAT. A change was made to the Robert W. Barbie Jr. W4AMI award. As of November 1, 2021, contacts on FM satellites will no longer count toward this award. The AMSAT report comes to us each week, courtesy of Bruce Page, KK5DO.
9: It's not too late to register your interest for YOTA month 2021. YOTA stands for Youth on the Air. The RSGB has been granted the call sign Golf Bravo 2-1 Yankee Oscar Tango Alpha for allocation to youngsters to operate throughout the month. The idea for this is to show the amateur radio hobby to youth and to encourage youngsters to be active on the ham radio bands. The Yota team suggests that you give a demonstration in a school or local club. You gather together with your friends, grab a pizza and make some QSOs or enjoy a pile-up. Let's all show this great hobby to the world, they say. Amateurs should feel free to make a contact on air with the youngsters. They'll be happy to get some attention and they'll exchange information. Licensed and unlicensed young people will be making contacts, that's QSOs, so be aware this could be their first radio contact ever. Give them a chance to experience a possible new hobby. This year, a number of school, club and individual operators will be hosting the callsign throughout Yota month, and the team hope to encourage a number of new youngsters into starting the hobby, as well as reigniting the passion from those of us already involved. Operating slots are open for clubs and individuals, but you must be a full licence holder yourself or have another full licensee who's willing to supervise the activity. To see what operating slots are still available, please visit the QRZ listing for GB21 YOTA or you can email yota.month at rsgb.org.uk to register your interest in hosting the call sign during December. Please include your name, call sign, and, if possible, your RSGB membership or affiliation number. If you'd like to request a specific time slot that is different to the spreadsheet on qrz.com, just add this into your email.
7: Tad Cook, K7RA in Seattle, reports sunspot numbers and the solar flux index were both declining by the end of the October 28th through November 3rd reporting week, but weekly averages for both numbers were higher than reported the previous week. The average daily sunspot number increased from 54.9 to 67.6, while average daily solar flux jumped from 95.7 to 102 coronal mass ejection or cme activity through the week drove geomagnetic numbers much higher but as space weather woman tamitha skov wx6sww explains solar storm activity will not destroy your electronics as some have suggested
11: so don't worry about your teslas don't worry about your computers you know none of that stuff is a problem if you get really worried about it then just get a Power conditioning unit, but you're not going to have anything induced from the solar storm directly into your electronics. Please don't believe all that fear mongering because it's just completely untrue. I don't care that the History Channel told you it would happen, it's wrong. (laughs) It does not happen.
7: Space Weather Woman Tamitha Scove, WX6SWW.
4: Under the sunny skies of South Africa on the 30th of October, the Secunda Radio Club, ZS6SRC, released a high altitude weather balloon that was ultralight. But carried some heavy duty payloads. Among those sharing the trip into near space were a variety of experiments a crossband FM repeater, slow scan TV, and the new AMSAT SA AfriCube linear transponder with APRS and a CW beacon on two meters. This was the latest of the club's projects known by the anacronym BACAR for Balloons Carrying Amateur Radio. The club's ongoing weather balloon initiative has been heralded in the past for its contributions to STEM education through the program's cooperation with local schools. According to the club website, the curriculum includes programming of microcontrollers, digital electronics, and, of course, radio communications.
9: The final edition of the free digital amateur television magazine CQDATV is now available for download. Within its pages, Trevor Brown, Golf 8 Charlie Juliet Sierra, welcomed readers to issue 100 of the electronic amateur television magazine. He said that all good things must come to an end, and CQDATV was no exception. This would be the final ever edition of the magazine, and the editors thanked all the people who'd contributed articles and pictures over the 100 issues. CQDATV delivered its support via digital-only publishing. This was a brave step, but having lost the Dutch ATV magazine Repeater and the German ATV magazine Der TV Amateur, it was time to try a different approach. Ian Porson was the power behind digital publication. He introduced the technology when he was the editor of CQTV, and by the time he left, over 90% of the membership had switched to receiving their magazine digitally. When Ian started CQDATV magazine, the format was ebook only, but as others joined the team, they started producing a PDF version. Then they had all bases covered. Was CQDATV successful? Well, with more than half a million downloads in 8 years, you have to say yes. No other ATV magazine has achieved this level of interest. All issues, one to one hundred, are available for download from cq-datv.mobi forward slash ebooks.php. That's cq-datv.mobi
7: forward slash ebooks.php. Paul Maurer VA6MPM treks across the Canadian Rockies, often for days at a time, alone. Faced with the prospect of being out of touch in the wilderness, amateur radio connects him to the outside world as he journeys beyond cell phone coverage. Maur has figured out how to travel light, and he enjoys activating summits on the air.
5: But I realized
13: fairly quickly in the, in the remote uh, alpine club of canada huts that
5: i was visiting uh, vhf wasn't going to cut the mustard and i needed to get an hf license which i did since that time i've been carrying an hf radio to when i go
13: into the back country because i do casual uh, custodial and maintenance work for the alpine club of canada so i'm i'm back in the back country frequently i enjoy
5: that and so i carry my radio with me in there as as a means of communication.
7: Thanks to QSO Today for that audio clip.
5: The Verge reports that Microsoft has reversed its decision to remove a key feature from its upcoming .NET 6 release after a public outcry from the open source software community. Microsoft had piqued the .NET open source community by removing a key part of Hot Reload in the upcoming release of .NET 6. This is a feature that allows developers to modify source code while an application is running and immediately see the results. According to The Verge, the outcry came from many of Microsoft's own employees. Microsoft has now approved the community's request to re-enable this feature. Hot reload capability will be in the general availability build of the .NET 6 SDK, available on November 8th, The Verge quoted a Microsoft spokesperson as saying.
0: You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the Amateur Radio Hobbyist. We are This Week in Amateur Radio. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP.
15: I wanted to take some time to cover some of the common topics related to installing antenna systems on towers. First, let's examine designing and installing an antenna mount for the side of a smaller tower, like the one in your yard. I have built a few homemade mounts out of scrap pieces of steel usually built from a three-quarter inch steel pipe about three feet long and three steel bars about one to two inches across maybe a quarter inch thick. Material like this can often be purchased off the shelf from your local hardware store or welding shop. You will need to climb the tower to measure the sizes and dimensions of the tower legs and diagonal members where you intend to mount the sidearm you're building. If you do not have access to a welder Have the shop weld together the mount with the ends of the straps onto the pipe, with about a a foot between the straps, which would be centered on the three-foot pipe. This will give you about a foot above and below the straps onto which you can side mount or end mount an antenna. Pre-drill the holes for U-bolts to mount the straps onto the tower legs. Then also do the same for the U-bolts at the furthest end of the straps from the mounting tube. This mount should be set across one entire face of the tower so it can be hinged inward during mounting or servicing. After the mount is set in place and the antenna is set on the mount, the third support strap can be clamped to the mount and tower to reduce wobble. This is not a suitable mount for a wide tower unless you intend to mount the antenna close to the tower. The most common rule for mounting distance is one half wavelength from the closest face of the tower. If done properly, would make the tower nearly electrically transparent to the incoming or outgoing signals. If you draw a sine wave on a piece of paper, you'll notice that the voltage at one half wavelength is zero. This is why we prefer to mount antennas at multiples of one half wavelength. At two meters, that equals one meter out, or 39 inches from the antenna to the closest face on the tower. Imagine the sidearm necessary for six meters. At 224 MHz it equals about 24 inches for a half wave distance. If you have done all your measurements accurately at the mounting site you can assemble the entire structure on the ground and make sure it all fits before taking any of it into the air. Since my homemade mounts usually weigh less than 15 pounds I usually carry them up the tower with me, set them in place then bring up the antennas and feed lines. This plan would change depending upon the height of the tower other antennas on the tower, or how you feel about carrying cargo up the side of the tower safely. Sometimes it's easy, other times there would be too much risk of touching other active antennas, which would make hoisting the mount and antenna by rope from the ground necessary. It is obvious here that pre-planning is essential to ensure safety and reduce the number of trips up and down the tower. While I have promoted the idea of wearing cargo up the tower, I'm the first to admit that limiting trips on the tower and hours on the tower are the real goal in any job I do. Limiting both man hours and movement will also limit the risk of death, which is cool. I've seen a few different methods of securing amateur-sized coax to a tower leg. The most common I've seen is regular plastic electrical tape. The biggest problem with electrical tape is its lifespan. Mother Nature works to remove the sticky from electrical tape within the first half year. I've also seen cable ties used. As far as I know clear or white cable ties are not made to survive sunlight, ozone, or Mother Nature's worst, which limit these to about seven months or less, especially if they are flexed regularly. I think the black cable ties are the best for outdoor mounting. Lastly, I've seen 12 gauge solid wire with insulation cut to 5-inch lengths and wrapped around the tower leg in coax then twisted. I know this type of scrap material to hold coax to a tower leg for decades with no visible sign of aging. I've also seen a black cable tie over several layers of electrical tape and coax can change size and length during the day so always allow for these changes. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly money spent on books videos and climbing gear is well worth the investment this is greg stoddard kf9mp reporting for this week in amateur radio
4: china's harbin institute of technology has applied for the international amateur radio union coordination of asrtu-1 cubesat among other capabilities the satellite will provide a vu-fm amateur radio transponder asrtu-1 is a 12u cubesat mission designed by Russian and Chinese university students for education and amateur radio. Harbin Institute of Technology has successfully developed several amateur radio satellites, including Lilac sat 2 CAS-3H, h Lilac sat LO-90, DSLWP-A, LO-93, and DSLWP-B, LO-94. A new SDR-based transceiver was developed for ASRTU-1 to provide communication and experiment resources to amateur radio operators, including a VU transponder, a UF telemetry downlink, and a 10.5 GHz image downlink. The satellite will also allow radio amateurs to send commands to control the satellite to take and download images. ASRTU is planned for a launch from Russia in the fourth quarter of 2022.
5: Here is this week's listing of upcoming AWRL Learning Network webinars. Visit the AWRL Learning Network to register, check on upcoming webinars, and to view previously recorded sessions. Getting Started with All-Star, presented by Jason Johnson, KC5HWB of Ham Radio 2.0, will be presented on Thursday, November 11, 2021, at 1830 UTC. AllSTAR is an internet-based connection network for linking repeaters and nodes. It can be used by home operators or with large area repeaters. This presentation will cover the basics of AllSTAR, how to get started with it, and how you can begin using it. ARRL members may register for upcoming presentations and view previously recorded learning network webinars. ARRL-affiliated radio clubs may also use the recordings as presentations for club meetings, mentoring new and current hams, and discussing amateur radio topics. The ARRL Learning Network schedule is subject to
9: change. Bob Alexander, Golf Mike Zero Delta Echo Quebec, reports that the Crocodile Rock Amateur Radio Group, based in Scotland, will be operating two commemorative stations to celebrate the centenary of Paul Godley's successful transatlantic test, conducted in December 1921. Both the special and the rarer special special event stations will be operating between the 1st and the 26th of December 2021. The call signs used for the centenary will be Golf Bravo 2 Zulu Echo and Golf Bravo 1002 Zulu Echo respectively. Back in 1921, American Paul Godley, callsign 2 Zulu Echo, embarked on a de-expedition, ultimately to Ardrossan, Scotland, in order to receive the first transatlantic shortwave amateur radio message from the amateur station 1 Bravo Charlie Gulf, located in Greenwich, Connecticut, in the United States. In fitting tribute to Paul Godley, negotiations between Ofcom and the Crocodile Rock Amateur Radio Group has resulted in Ofcom offering all UK and Crown dependency licensed radio amateurs the ability to use the suffix stroke 2 Zulu Echo with their own call signs from the 1st to the 26th of December 2021. Crocodile Rock say please join the celebrations and embrace the rare opportunity to use the stroke 2 ZE allocation. In addition to the radio celebrations, North Ayrshire Council, in collaboration with the Crocodile Rock Club, have jointly created an exhibition surrounding the centenary, which will be hosted in the North Ayrshire Heritage Centre Saltcoats on the west coast of Scotland near Glasgow. This exhibition opened on the 1st of November and will be open through to mid-December 2021. Further details surrounding the centenary can be found at www.transatlantic.org.uk. The RSGB has additional historical information which can be found on the RSGB website, rsgb.org. Just navigate to Transatlantic Tests. And also, the USA National Society, the ARRL website, has information at www.arrl.org forward slash transatlantic.
0: We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net.
6: A radio amateur in France is planning a de-expedition to the Crozet Islands FT5-W for mid-December 2022 to mid-March 2023 with the call sign FT5-WQ. Thierry Mazel, f 6 cuk uk spent months getting permission to operate from the third most wanted DXCC entity. TAAF, The agency that administers the French remote islands is allowing a one-person operation. The Crozet Island archipelago is divided into east and west. They once were the destination of seal hunters from the U.S. and elsewhere. The last ham radio activity from Crozet was in 2009 by Florentin Bard, F4DYW, also as FT5WQ. The solo de expedition is anticipated to cost as much as $58,000. The Twitter account is at Crozet2022, that's at C R O Z E T 2022, and a website is expected to be online soon. When it's up and running, it will include details on how donated funds will be used, and Thierry pledges that all contributions will be refunded if the operation does not take place. Crozet Islands, a sub-Antarctic archipelago of small islands in the southern Indian Ocean, form one of the five administrative districts of the French Southern and Antarctic territories. It consists of several small uninhabited islands of volcanic origin. The islands cover an area of some 195 square miles. The islands are now a national conservation area. Radio amateurs are not the only ones hoping to visit. According to a description theory posted on the website of the International Amateur Radio Union Member Society, REF, the climate is particularly difficult, the islands of Croce are strongly committed to the protection of nature, fauna, and flora, and the prefect's offices are faced with a significant solicitation of visitor requests. Many obstacles had to be overcome, Thierry said. While people are scarce, the islands boast a broad array of wildlife, including penguins, elephant seals, and giant albatross. In common with other sub islands, the inadvertent or intentional introduction of alien species has proven a problem. Rats and mice arrived accidentally, cats were brought in to control them, and rabbits were introduced as food. Mazelle will release further details on this proposed
2: de-expedition as they are available. ARRL is hiring for the following position at its headquarters in Newington, Connecticut. Qualified candidates are invited to email their cover letter and resume to AWRL Human Resources Visit the AWRL Employment Opportunities page for more information. Lab Engineer, EMC, RFI Specialist, Administrative Assistant, Director of Information Technology, Marketing Communications Associate, Public Relations and Outreach Manager, Social Media Strategist. To apply to any of these positions, Submit your resume and cover letter by mail, email, or fax to AWRL Human Resources, 225 Main Street, Newington, Connecticut, 06111. Meanwhile, the League has announced that the AWRL Handbook for Radio Communications for 2022 has been released. The Handbook is a traditional must-have for every radio amateur's bookshelf. Whether you're an experienced ham or new to the hobby, you'll find information you can use to advance your amateur radio knowledge and skills. This current, comprehensive, and complete reference is available in three formats. Traditional softcover, a six-volume shrink-wrapped book set, and as a digital e-book. The 2022 edition features new projects and tools, Including 3D printing techniques for ham radio construction, battery selection for portable operation, analog to digital converter overload, solid state amplifier linearity,
4: an update on Solar Cycle 25, and a lot more. A new webinar from India explores the role radio plays in disasters. Radio in all its major forms amateur radio, community radio, and broadcast radio were presented as important resources in disaster management during a webinar held November 2nd by the National Institute of Disaster Management in India. The two-hour program was called The Role of Radio in Disaster Communication and Information and was co-hosted by the West Bengal Radio Club and the Indian Academy of Communication and Disaster Management. Ambarish Biswas, VU2JFA, Secretary of the West Bengal Club, told attendees that WISE disaster management also includes training local people. He said training was the key to success in the aftermath of cyclones, floods, and other disasters, and told webinar viewers local people are our first responders. He went on to say that amateur radio training is readily available through the Indian Academy of Communication and Disaster Management on Sundays through a three-month program of study. One of the key presenters was Saborni Biswas, VU2JFC, who has not only been involved in direct response during disasters, but has assisted in training people in the community. She has also been deeply involved in mock drills and major simulated emergency training exercises. Harjeet Hare of the National Institute of Disaster Management stressed the role that community radio has in providing support to amateur radios. Other presenters talked about the additional roles that broadcast radio can play in getting the word out, too. According to
3: the Ohio DX News, while formal details are still being worked out with respect to the new Victor Papa Zero callsign prefix for hams operating in the Antarctic region, the government of the British Antarctic Territory is seeking input no later than November 10th on draft legislation specific to the British Antarctic Territory, which includes South Orkney and South Shetland Islands, as well as the mainland section of the Antarctic continent itself. The Victor Papa Zero prefix is also to apply to hams operating on the British sector of the Antarctic mainland and the South Sandwich Islands, but authorities have not yet determined how the transition will be made there from existing VP8 licenses. The recent announcement of the new prefix for these former Falkland Islands dependencies was heralded as a welcome development for de-expeditioners and chasers after the use of VP8 licenses was no longer permitted there.
0: This Week in Amateur Radio is holding open auditions for news anchors for the weekly national worldwide amateur radio news service. If you have a good radio voice and can reliably read provided news copy, we are looking for you. This, of course, is an all-volunteer position. An amateur radio license is not required. You must have a high-quality microphone, headset mics are not used, and be familiar with audio editing software to record and edit your finished news stories before uploading. If you would like to try out for a weekly or bi-weekly anchor position with North America's premier amateur radio news on air and podcast, please send an email to our producer, George, W2XBS. You can include a sample MP3 of yourself reading news copy sent as an attachment to w2xbs77 at gmail.com. That's whiskey, the number two, X-Ray Bravo Sierra 77 at gmail.com. Be sure and use Anchor Audition in the subject line. Please include your phone number and a good window of time for a callback to discuss your submission and our operating logistics to see if This Week in Amateur Radio is a good fit for you. We hope to hear from you soon.
8: Originating from Albany, New York, and distributed worldwide, you are listening to This Week in Amateur Radio.
1: And finally this week, a new museum planned in Poland is working on rebuilding a 200-kilowatt transmitter formerly used by the Transatlantic Radio-Telegraphic Broadcasting Center in Warsaw. That station once enjoyed one of the highest profiles in Europe. Its radio towers were the world's second tallest, and the station itself enjoyed a role as a busy center for important communications between Europe and the United States. According to a story in the American-Polish Eagle, half of the telegrams sent from Europe to people in the U.S. were transmitted via this Warsaw station. Its 10 towers stood 126 meters tall, the equivalent of more than 430 feet, and its two 200-kilowatt transmitters reliably reached North and South America. The museum, planned by the electronics faculty at the Military University of Technology, hopes to recognize this station in its array of exhibits and with a radio station that will broadcast the historic station's history on the shortwave frequencies. The station was used during the Second World War to send messages to Japan and German U-boats by the German occupying forces who destroyed it before leaving at the end of the war.
0: Many of the news and information items heard on This Week in Amateur Radio have been provided by The American Radio Relay League, the ARRL Letter, the ARRL Audio News, the Southgate Amateur Radio News Service, Southgate Vibes, AMSAT, the Radio Amateurs of Canada, the FCC, the Radio Society of Great Britain and Ofcom, the SARL, the International Amateur Radio Union, the Wireless Institute of Australia, the Amateur Radio Newsline the International Telecommunications Union, and various news sources on the Internet. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard around the world on nets and great repeater systems like our newest affiliates, the K2IWR repeater on 147.180 MHz in Cortland, New York, and the K2MST repeater on 443.150 MHz serving all of Syracuse, New York. We welcome them aboard the vast This Week in Amateur Radio network of repeaters and nets around the world. If your net or repeater carries This Week in Amateur Radio, why not let us know about it and we'll give you a free promo here on the air. All you need to do is put all the details into an email and give us the repeater call sign, frequency, area served, and the days and times that you carry This Week in Amateur Radio And send it off in an email to w2xbs77 at gmail.com. We'd be happy to hear from you. That address, once again, is w2xbs77 at gmail.com. We hope to hear from
11: you real soon. With special thanks to all our weekly news sources and to you, our listeners, that wraps up this edition of This Week in Amateur Radio. If you'd like to write to us, you can find everything you need, including archive editions of the news service, at our website at TWIAR.net. We would like to take this opportunity to let you know that This Week in Amateur Radio is produced and distributed entirely each week by our all-volunteer nonprofit organization and that we do incur expenses for its future operations. If you would like to support us, you can visit our website for all the information, Our address, once again, is www.twiar.net. And now, for all of us at This Week in Amateur Radio headquarters and our news team around the world, this is Chris Perrine, KB2FAF, wishing you a 73.